Welcome to Be The Light Podcast with C.B. Barflow, lead pastor of Denver Beacon. I am your host, Pastor Ty Morris. Our desire is to lead the lost, the broken, and the hopelessness of our communities, to be light bearers in our city set on a hill. Now tune in for our sermon series. The book of James. James is towards the end of the New Testament. The epistle or letter from James. And we start a brand new series today, a new series that we're going to spend 26 weeks in. We're going to be studying the book of James, as is our custom. We like to go line by line, book by book, and we're going to be in this letter for the next 26 weeks. And the series is entitled, Walk It Out. And now, for those of you who are, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, more pale in complexion, that phrase won't resonate well with you. But for, for some of us, when I say walk it out, you already start feeling that like, says I walk it out. No. Um, I won't play the song because another church just did that for New Year's and they got in hot water in Jesus' name. No. What we're going to do is talk about this book. This letter from, from James is a, is, is, is a letter that really helps us who are believers in Jesus Christ to walk out our faith. And we're going to spend the next 26 weeks in great detail examining this letter so that we can come to a clear understanding and answer the question, how do I do this thing called Christianity? So if you have James chapter 1, verse 1, say amen. The word of the Lord reads like this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The title of this message, the first title in our series called Walk It Out, this message is simple, and I'm hoping that the title will resonate with you, something you carry with you from this day all the way until you see the king. The title today is Trouble is Good. I want to say it a couple times. In fact, I think today it will be our mantra, but I want to say it again just so you you don't miss it. Trouble. The trouble that you face in this world. For those who are in Christ Jesus, it's not bad. It's good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word and this time together. God, I ask that you'd open our hearts and our minds to receive from you. Help us to have your perspective in Jesus' name. Amen. Trouble is good. You didn't know you were going to be on the slide, did you? I saw it and I was like, come on, somebody. Look, the reason that we start with, uh, I don't even know, there's so much to do today, but I just feel the power of the Lord. We say, and the anointing. Um, This isn't in the the notes. June 1st of 2010, uh, I came back from rehab. I spent 28 days in a treatment facility in Utah, and I um, came home. 
for the first time in almost 15 years, I had 28 days sober. And I, I, uh, I got to my, my apartment, and, um, and I had all of the fear that comes along with knowing that God had done a good thing for me, but not knowing if I was going to be able to hold on to it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And I went to bed that first night in my apartment, and um, I prayed a, a simple prayer. God, just make it stick. Next morning, I woke up, and I, I'd been raised in the church. Y'all know the story. I love the Lord, and I'd known the Lord, and it was the Lord's good, mighty hand that got me out of addiction, the prayers of my mother that saw through away. And, and, and even when I was in treatment, I was praying all the time. Even all these other drug addicts were like, bro, can you be quiet? And I was like, the Bible says pray without ceasing. I'd just be praying. Uh, I woke up the next morning and God had begun to answer the prayer of please make it stick. I woke up and heard the, the voice of the Lord say, read the book of James. It was the first book I read with clear eyes. I love this book. And um, this book is a book that I've been waiting to teach for our church. You see, over the course of the last four years, every spring, we've taught a book in its entirety. We taught through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, each one of those, an epistle from the Apostle Paul, a letter that is primarily written to a specific church, and it is most entirely about doctrine, meaning here's what we believe. And we needed to do that. I felt compelled by the Lord to teach doctrine for the first four years of our church so that we all became and came to know God the way God wanted us to know him. Amen. We don't at this church do topical sermons. I don't do a whole series on sex or money. We don't do nine ways to change your finances. We don't do any of that. We teach the Bible from start to finish. We teach a letter in its entirety, in its context, so there is no pretext and no subtext. We don't cherry pick. We read the good stuff and the really good stuff that some people call the hard stuff. Y'all with me? And I just couldn't wait to teach the book of James. And the Lord said, hold, 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 hold. And in October, I went, as is my custom, to, to a three-day silent retreat with the Lord and sought the face of the Lord. What do you want to teach us for the next year? And he, he, I thought it was going to be hard because I wasn't getting a word. I was just like, oh, me and God are going to wrestle in this mountain town, and he's going to tell me what to, and I want to preach this. And, and I sat down in this cabin in Grand Lake, and the Lord said, we're going to do James. And I just left for joy. Because the teaching in this letter helped me walk it out. Like to help me not just be a Christian, but like be a Christian. Help me not just be delivered, but like be delivered. And so today, thanks mom. Is it tea? Delicious. And it's not too hot, right? Do you guys like hot beverages? I like warm beverages. You guys like hot food? I like warm food. Give me everything at room temperature. Isn't that weird? Anyway, that's not in the notes either. I don't know what we're doing. All right, let's talk about this book. Before we get into the teaching, I want you to understand the text and, and who's teaching the text. So let's, let's talk about James. And let me introduce James for you. This letter, the letter or, or the epistle of James, is what we call a universal letter. The original word was, would have been Catholic. It is a Catholic letter. Catholic, don't worry, means universal. 
okay? And the reason it's called a universal letter is because it's not written to a specific church. It's not like Corinthians or Romans or Galatians written to a church, a group of churches to address a specific issue. It is written as a general letter to a large group of people all across different regions who have one thing in common, and that is their faith. Now, when, when James writes this letter, he says he's writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. 12 tribes is a phrase that under the old covenant meant the 12 tribes of Israel, the chosen people as they had been divided according to the 12 tribes. And he writes to those 12 tribes in the dispersion. The Greek word, a word we still use today, is the diaspora, meaning all of the people who have this one thing culturally in common who live in di- different regions. Today we use that term according to to. to, to to study of African-Americans, we, we call them the, the African diaspora, people of African descent who live in multiple regions. It's an idea that there is a group of people who, though they be separated by space, are not separated by culture or faith. And under the old covenant, the 12 tribes would have meant specifically, exclusively Israel. But as James is writing, under the new covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ and the doctrine through which he teaches, he writes to the 12 tribes in the new covenant. And the 12 tribes in the new covenant are all of those who believe in Jesus. And so when it works here in the immediate writing, he's writing to Jewish Christians People who are the chosen people who converted to faith in Christ and us. It's a universal letter. Unlike Paul's epistles where he writes to a church to correct an issue, there are oftentimes descriptive texts, meaning he writes specifically about an instance, but there are prescriptive truths. Right? So when Paul writes to a church about heresy and the Judaizers, remember we talked about that last year in Galatians, a specific group of people who were coming in to teach falsely, that was unique to that church, but the concept of false teaching is not unique. It's universal. Amen. And that's where we can derive truth. Well, when we read James's letter, there's, there's not a lot of that. Let me address a specific issue. He's writing to everyone on purpose. We come to understand that this letter was probably written somewhere between 45 and 47 A.D., likely before the Jerusalem Council. That's the council uh, found in Acts 15 when the Apostle Paul comes to meet with James to inquire about his ministry to the Gentiles. And mostly this book is a book of commands. I mean, unlike the Gospels or Paul's letters, this book is filled with do's and don'ts which would have resonated very well to the people who were raised Jewish. Amen? They're accustomed to rules. The law was the order of the day. But the beauty is that when when James writes this book of commands, he also provides the why behind it. You ever have a kid and you tell them what to do and they say, why? And I don't know if you parent like I do. I'm like, because I said so. But some of us are more free-range in our parenting. Well, Jonathan, that's kind of what James does here. He says, here's what we're going to do. Here's what you need to do. Here's how to live it out. And here's why. This is why this matters. This is what it will produce. This is how you should think. I want you to understand what you do, not just do it because you're told to do it. The funny thing about the, the book of James is that there's not really a theme to it. 
I mean, there's a million themes, but there's not one overarching arc story. In fact, most theologians laugh because James's book is like all in on one point and then quickly turns to another. There's rarely connective tissue between the concepts. He just bounces, bounces, bounces. And most biblical historians have come to believe that this letter is likely the summation of all of his teachings, sermons, and homilies from his time serving as the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. It's like a cliff notes. It's like James preached his heart out day and night and said, you know what, I think this might be important for everybody. We should jot these down. What I love is that this book is full of action. It's full of wisdom. And for me, it does answer the question, how? Funny thing about James, though, is that um, he was probably the least likely to write a letter like this. He has a good outlook when he writes this letter, but he didn't start with a good outlook. If you read the Gospels, you'll find in John 7 and Mark 6, this James, who we have come to believe is the half-brother of Jesus. While there's many James throughout the New Testament, most all of the evidence points to the fact that this is James, who grew up with an older brother named Jesus. Jesus, his older brother. Can you imagine being a normal kid and your parents being like, why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> it's no wonder that the gospel accounts, when they mention this James, indicate that this James was not the biggest fan of Jesus. He, he grew up with an older brother who thought himself God. <laughs> I know you have an older brother that might be like that. But this one really believed it. And then when he stepped out in faith and began to do great and mighty things, it brought some shame to the family because the teaching that he taught was so revolutionary. The things that he carried were so revolutionary. The anointing that he had had to be reconciled with. The proof, hard. Hardest for his family. James didn't believe in Jesus. But when you read the letter, it's clear he does. You should ask questions when you see big change in somebody like that, like what in the world happened? What we know about James, not only through his letter and the theme in which he writes, but also through the biblical accounts of his interactions with Jesus and his interactions with Paul, but also through extra-biblical accounts, historical accounts around the ancient Near East time of the first century church, Eusebius, Josephus. These are writers who write from an outside lens about the characters that we find in the Bible. One theme emerges about the man James, and it's a key indicator for how someone who could go from being chief skeptic of Jesus to being chief priest of his church. And that is that James was known to be a man of prayer. In fact, before his conversion, he was known to be a devout man of Jewish prayer. He prayed so much, it changed his body. Eusebius, the historian, characterized his most common nickname. James had a nickname that people said about him but didn't say to him. You know what I'm talking about? They called him something that they never called him to his face. You know what they called him? They called him Old Camel Knees, which is a terrible nickname. Am I right? 
I'm sure James was like, why can't I be like Peter? They call him the rock. I wish I could be the rock. No, they called him old camel knees. And the reason is because James was such a man of prayer. Not prayer like you and I pray. Not passing prayer, flippant prayer, prayer in the bathroom, or prayer in the car. No, James prayed devoutly and diligently on his knees. James spent so much time in intercession for his own soul and petitioned for knowledge of God that the accounts tell us that his kneecaps split and his knees flattened at the joint. So when he stood and you were to see him, his legs looked as camels, thin and wide at the joint. Josephus says that when James walked, he waddled like a camel because the knees didn't bend. He, he prayed so much, it changed him on the outside. You've heard me preach that prayer will change things. Not only the world around you, but your heart. But James believed it such that it changed his flesh. And as we read through his letter, you'll find the theme of prayer pervasive. He says, this is how we live. Don't feel like you can do it? Pray about it. Pray about it, but don't you pray if you don't believe. Believe about it. He teaches prayer and it changed him. Now, here's the beauty. It changed him not just from the half-brother who was a skeptic, but at the time of this writing, you've heard me say, James was the bishop of the church of Jerusalem. Here's why that matters. The church in Jerusalem was the church, the first church, the main church. When Paul went to plant churches in Gentile regions, he came back to this church to meet with James, the pastor, to ask for advice and permission. Every church that Paul planted was under the covering of the church that James pastored. And every church that has ever existed has come from the churches that have been planted by Paul. So our church is under the covering of this pastor. James is our bishop. And his teaching, our teaching. He was known as James the Righteous. But to his face, they called him the Greek name Oblias. It means simply just. He was a man so marked by prayer that he embodied the righteousness his brother came to give. Oh, that we might live a life where people knew us as just. But here's the best part. James didn't call himself the bishop of the church. He didn't call himself James the righteous or James the just. He didn't introduce himself at conferences or networking events as just. No, he only introduces himself one time in scripture and it's here. He says, James, my servant, this word in the Greek is duolos. They called him oblias, just. He called himself duolos, slave. 
He said, it's James. A slave to Yahweh and Yeshua. Greetings. <laughs> Man, I made a promise this year not to cry during church. <laughs> it's not working. Holy smokes. Oh, that I could be a man of such prayer. Oh, that you and I could lean so deeply into communion with our Father that it would not only change our heart, change our minds, change our bodies, but change our identity. That when people would see us, they would see a mere reflection of the King of Kings. And when we saw ourselves, we simply looked to the King. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. It's from this outlook that James writes this letter. And it's my deep prayer as your pastor that over the next 26 weeks, you would walk out your faith in a way that would change your world. Now notice this. Unlike Paul, who writes in his epistles these great, grandiose, flowery, poetic introductions, Paul often starts his letters and says, It is I, Paul, servant of the Most High God, and I greet each one of you. In tear and in weeping and in joy and in pain, I've been praying for you day and nightly. I long for you and I labor over you in childbirth. I think about you often. It is my earnest desire to return for you once again. Say hello to Eusebius and this person and that person and this person. Oh, I missed you so much. Hi. And James says, well, let's see it. James says, uh, greetings. That's it. That's how James says hello. He is not a man for niceties or extra words. James says, yo, we got some work to do. Now that resonates for me, but for my wife, who's often the kind of person who wants to make sure we say hello to everybody, it's okay, it's in the Bible. Sometimes it can be just an Irish goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. He says, greetings. And then James jumps right into hard teaching. I like that. The first thing he says is, let's talk about trouble. Good trouble. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's the first sentence of his letter. Not, I can't wait to tell you about all the good things. He says, hey, I know you're in trouble. It's good. John Lewis, the civil rights activist and elected congressman in 1986, echoed a similar phrase. John Lewis was uh, one of the original freedom fighters, the original 13 freedom riders. He was a member of the Nashville Student Committee that organized the first Nashville sit-ins and lunch counters and bus boycotts. He was the first chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He was a pivotal leader in the transformation of our country towards the move for civil rights amongst African Americans. He was later elected to the Congress in 1986, and he never wavered from a phrase that he was known for saying over and over and over again. And two months before his death, he stood on the bridge in Selma, and he echoed these same words. He said, get in good trouble, necessary trouble. Redeem the soul of America. Now, John Lewis wasn't a believer, 
but he was echoing the same teaching that James knew to be true. You want to see change? You better not run from trouble. When John Lewis stood on that bridge the very first time in Selma and echoed those phrases, he forecast what was to come in the battle alongside his dear friend Martin Luther King, whose birthday we celebrate tomorrow, the understanding that if we're really going to make change in this world, it's not going to be easy. You want to see rights, you want to see development, you want to see good things come to pass, there's going to be some bad days. And there's no part of any journey worth fighting. There's no battle worth showing up for where you're going to see a victory where you just get to forfeit and then see the victory. It's going to cost you something to do something mighty. Amen. And James says the same thing, though. He doesn't fight just for rights. He fights for your spirit. He fights and contends for your lives, for your eternal life. And he says, are you facing some trouble? Good. Now, I don't know how many of you have somebody in your life that's eternally optimistic. You got somebody in your life like that? You have somebody that's just all roses and unicorns and giggles all the time? Do you? Ashley pointed to Cody, her husband. She's like, he ain't here. You have somebody in your life who's overwhelmingly positive. Amen? I'm going to tell you this right now. That's good. You need those people. (laughs) even on the days you don't want those people around. You ever have somebody like that? You're just having a bad day and you vent and they don't let you vent? How rude. They just want to fix it and be all like, God's going to work it out. Don't you worry, brother. Thank God. Let's pray together. And you're like, shut up. Let me complain. But the truth is, is that God sends those people to you so they can speak light to your darkness and life to your death. And this is James in this moment. But unlike a lot of the people we have in our life that are like that, because we have some people that are optimistic, but they're not very helpful. You know what I'm talking about? Like smiles, but not a lot of solutions. James doesn't write like that. He doesn't downplay your struggle. When he writes this letter to us and to the people in the original audience, he doesn't write to say, who cares what you're going through? God is good. Amen. He's not writing about a faith that's just in the sky but doesn't matter on the ground. He's writing as a man who knows what it's like to have a crisis. He knows what it's like to struggle. He knows what it's like to walk alongside a mother who is grieving the death of his son. And he didn't even believe that son was supposed to die that way. He knows what it's like to walk along a road of faith and understand, like, was he really God? What in the world? My brother was God. How can this be possible? James wonders what it's like to, to... wrestle with some stuff. When he writes this original letter, he's writing to Jewish Christians in the diaspora, the dispersion, who are actually going through some tangible problems. Right around the first century of the church, the Roman Empire had begun to expand in such a fashion where private land ownership proliferated the region and created classes. Up until this point, Class was mostly based on caste and culture. Y'all tracking with me? Caste meaning a a, a hard-to-define characteristic of your value and culture meaning what you looked like. Amen? But as as capitalism began to proliferate in the region controlled by the Romans and, and when land ownership began to take shape, we found that people became landowners, most of them Roman or Greek, and those who suffered as renters or leasers were people who were of Jewish descent, Philistine descent, Assyrian descent. They became the marginalized people. And what was happening is that they were they're essentially being forced into 
what, what we would know as sharecropping from the last 100 years, meaning you can live here, but you work for your property owner, and everything you earn goes to them. So yeah, you're free, but not really. And whenever your landowner wants to take back their land, you're out. That's it. No questions. You have no agency. You have no rights. You have no authority. That's just the way that it works. And so when James writes this letter, he's actually writing to people who are suffering that, forced homelessness. You with me? And he says, that's good. Count it joy. It's weird because when you read a text like this, if you study the word, you're looking for the value and, and, and the import of transitional words. As you study the Bible, I want you to be mindful that you don't just skim the Bible. Remember, we've talked about this. There's several ways to read the Bible. You can either read it really fast. You ever do one of those plans, like the whole Bible in a week, whatever. <laughs> what are you doing? What do you think I'm going? That's all I have time for. Or you can read a verse at a time. One is looking at the forest. And the other is studying a leaf. I would rather you study the leaves. I want you to know the forest. Amen? But the value and the power is in knowing all of the words. And the way to do that is not just pound through a verse, but to look at every verse. And one of the things that you have to see in this first verse is the superlative language that James uses. He says this, count it, what kind of joy? All joy. Whenever you meet trials of various kinds. Now, he does not say you can count it joy if you feel like it. He commands us to count it joy, all joy, every part of it joy, when, not if, not maybe, you might run into some difficult times in the future. No, when you run into difficult times tomorrow, count it all joy no matter what the trial looks like. Do you see the certainty in the language? He's not mincing words. He's not preaching this wimpy preaching that we do today. Oh, sometimes bad things happen. Oh, hopefully if you pray, maybe the Lord will get you out of it. But if not, at least you go to heaven. <laughs> Buddy, if you ever find yourself in a church like that, you should run. Because this word has power. And any preacher who won't preach with power doesn't understand the word. Y'all with me? So James stands up there and he says, you're going through difficult stuff? Ha <laughs> ha, dog, I love it. And you should too. You should consider everything that you go through that's hard, no matter what it is, as a good thing for you. And in teaching like that, with that level of power and authority, he mirrors the same conviction and resolute truth that his brother Jesus preaches with. Jesus never minced words. Jesus didn't say, the wages of sin might be death. I am one of the ways and one of the life. No, he said, it's me or it's never. He said, I'm the son of man. When he referred to himself in the third person, it was the prophecy from Daniel that declared that all of the government and all of the authority rested upon him. Jesus knew who he was, and James writes with the same authority. That's what the Bible should be pushing us to. But the cool thing is that James is, well, he's one of us. And so though he speaks in superlatives, he speaks tenderly just like Jesus. He says, count it all joy. 
brothers and sisters. It's a simple phrase. In the Greek, it's just brothers. And in that time period, in the first century church, all preachers were male, and they would preach to a room full of men. You should understand this. The first century church was men. And women were invited to come later. But the reason it was men is because men pastored men, and men were charged with pastoring their homes. You with me? Don't get offended. This is the Bible. James would teach to men, and the implication was, as I teach you, you shall be teaching your wives and your children. Y'all with me? Your sisters and your mothers and everyone else in your community. So when he says brothers, he speaks beyond the men in the room to every person in the community to whom those men touch, and he says it tenderly. This is going to be a hard thing, but I'm saying it to you because I love you, because we share in the same inheritance as brothers and sisters. Now we're going to define a bunch of terms today. And the first two are these beautifully juxtaposing trials and joy. James says, whenever you face trials or trouble, the word is perasmos, a Greek word that means adversity, problem, or most aptly defined as proof. You guys ever seen that movie, Goodwill Hunting? When I was 19, I watched that movie on VHS about 4,000 times one year. I was convinced that was Goodwill. <laughs> I was failing statistics, but I was, it was fine. No big deal. It's a detail. What I love about that movie is that in the beginning scene where he sort of demonstrates his authority is that the, the, the professor says there's a proof on the board. You and I, when we took math class, they'd give us a book of problems. But the further you matriculate in the study of mathematics, you come to understand that they're not problems, they're proofed. Meaning, when you endeavor to solve it, it is proof of a mathematical concept. Y'all with me? We think about math as a problem that we have to get finished with, have to overcome, have to be done with. But mathematicians see a problem as a proof. This is something I will undertake to prove something that makes good, amen, and upon which I can build. That's actually what trials mean. He says every time you face something that feels like adversity, feels like challenge, feels like trouble, it's actually going to be a proof if you will just go through it. Now, I want to talk about three kinds of ways you can face trial, because there's three kinds of trials in your life. Ready? The first one is the most common one, the one we always blame on. There can be trial or trouble that comes to your way that's brought forth by the devil. Amen? And if you're not spiritual, believe me, there is a devil and demons, and they are on assignment, and they do not like you. Amen? And there are things that you can go through that are uniquely assigned to spiritual attacks brought on by the devil. You hear people at church all the time say, oh, the devil is fighting me right now. Amen? Have you said that? It can be true. Not always true. Second type of trial, the trouble that you can go through is brought on by God. Though you don't want to know that, do you? It hurts our feelings to think that our God would allow us to encounter adversity or trouble because I just want him to be good and on my side. Doesn't he smooth things out for me? Yeah, eventually, but sometimes he's got to put a bump in the road to get your attention. 
That's why sometimes when I meet with families who have a family member who's in addiction and they're like, Pastor, would you just pray for us? And I'm like, how do you want me to pray? You want me to pray soft and gentle, or do you want me to pray like God can change the thing? And they're always like, ugh, I'm not sure. And then eventually they're like, let's pray. And I'm like, God, let's wreck their life. God, wreck their life. Seriously. You ever been in an intervention with me? I'm like, God, just cause them to lose their job and lose their home and break them all the way down until they're desperate. And the families are like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) And I'm telling you right now, that's good trouble. Because if you don't really go to rock bottom, you know, that's what we say when we're addicts, then you won't really have anywhere to go. You just keep wandering until you die. Sometimes God will bring you trouble. Third kind of trouble, well, this is the one that most often occurs. Though we don't want this one to be true. The trouble you get yourself into. Amen? Can I say this to you? Most of your trouble (laughs) is your fault. I know you don't like that. But it's true. The problem with us is that we love us so gosh darn much that even when we know it's our fault, we won't blame us, will we? We'll just be like, the devil took my job yesterday. Be like, you ain't been to your job in six weeks. The devil is, is trying to tear down my relationship. You don't fight fair. You give your wife the silent treatment. The devil ain't in your relationship. You're the devil in your relationship. Oh, you with me? See, some of us be blaming the devil when the devil has nothing to do with it. He's on vacation. He's like, no, you got this. Go ahead and mess it up. We don't want us to be the problem, but most of the time we're the problem, which means when we won't blame us or take accountability, we can't see a solve for it because we put blinders on. Everybody else is against me. Here's a tip. If you always run into drama, no matter where you go and no matter what relationship you're in, it ain't them. It's thank you. Y'all are preaching to me. Amen? I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting down for coffee with somebody and they go through a laundry list of relationships they've been with and it's all trouble. And I'm like, I'm not sure you're ready to hear this, but here it goes. (laughs) Most of your trouble is your fault. The good news is that God can still redeem it if you'll turn from it. See, eventually we all come to understand I might be the issue. But the next step is that you got to You've got to take the initiative to get out of the issue. The word repentance that we teach throughout this church and every God-fearing, Bible-believing church means to turn. It doesn't just mean to keep doing the same wrong thing and go, oops, a daisy. No, it means that was wrong. I'm not doing it anymore. Holy Spirit, you lead the way. You're going to get yourself into some trouble, and God can get you out if you'll follow him out. And James says, you know that trouble? No matter if the devil did it or king did it or you did it, you can count it joy. The word that he used here is kara. It's a Greek word that means calm delight. In the first service, I explained it like this. Have you ever had a really good day? You ever have a day off and you wake up without an alarm? Isn't that awesome? You ever just wake up just like a fairy tale? Just like, (laughs) You ever have coffee and the coffee's good? You have a healthy, how many of you have had a healthy breakfast and been like, look at me, (laughs) granola. You go through a whole day, you ever had a whole day where no weirdness, no bad things, no trauma happened. You get home, you get on the couch, you sit down and you go, did I just have a good day? You know that sense of contentment that comes after a good day? That's kara. It means calm, peace, delight. And Paul, James says, 
That is how you should feel about trouble. And you should be saying to yourself, <laughs> what? No. You should be asking this question, how? How could I ever feel that about trouble? That's the great question. That's why James continues. He says this in the next section, verse 3. For you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, he's talked about the good trouble that we face or seeing trouble as good. And then he quickly shifts the language that he uses. He uses a term that's synonymous, trial and testing. In James's writing, they're almost the exact same concept, but he bridges both what you go through with what it can produce with this layering of the two words. And he says, the way you go from good trouble to good testing is that you know, hmm, Whenever I meet people who are going through difficult seasons, the first thing I ask them is, has God ever done anything good for you before? Oh, yeah. I said, tell me about it. And people usually pause for a moment in the midst of their struggle or complaint and begin to remember the goodness of God. Boy, he was there when I was alone. He made a way when there was no way. He provided, he protected, he healed and delivered. He saved me, he loved me. He's always been there and ever present help in time of trouble. And I stop him, stop. You see, you do know that God is good, right? And you know that he can get good through everything, right? James teaches the same thing. He says, I know that trial will come your way and I'm telling you a hard thing. Consider it all joy. And the way that you do that is that you remember you come to knowing or understanding how God has brought beauty from ashes before. Amen? He says, remember, you know this already. I shouldn't have to recount your own testimony to you. You know that God brings Beautiful things through testing. In fact, he says, testing produces steadfastness. Hipomone is the word. It means perseverance, endurance, or patience. It means a process by which I'm made stronger, shown stronger. I love to work out at the gym, just so you know. I don't like cardio. I hate cardio. But I like weights because... When you get to be old and you can't stop your Twinkie addiction, weights work. Amen. But I go to the gym and I'm kind of like, I don't, I don't dress like gym guys. Like Tim and I, we go to the same gym. We're both dressed like grown men. We're covered. Amen. But I have some friends at the gym. David goes. You're, you're covered too. I love you, man. He, he is covered. But David has some friends he works out with and they're not covered. You ever see those tank tops that, that they're just, they call them stringers. Come on, man. But here's the process. Hipomone. Those guys that wear those stringers, they go to the gym so they can get strong, and they wear those clothes so they can prove they're strong. And I've been watching them. I've been doing this thing. I don't know what this does. <laughs> it's the same process. For them, it's all built into one. I'm going through something to get stronger, and while I'm getting stronger, I'm proving. I learned this one. <clears throat> I don't know. I still don't know what it does. But I understand the principle. I don't want to just go through it. I want to see the results of the test while I go through it. Amen? James says, you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It makes you stronger and you should see yourself. Now, can I push you about testing for just a second? When I first started preaching, I hated the idea that God would test us. But it's in the Bible. God does test us. And if you're new to the faith, it sounds mean, doesn't it? 
that God, after all I've been through, would also test me. But it's only mean if you think about God incorrectly in the process of testing. God does not test you to find out the results. Amen? God is not sitting at the front of the classroom, passing you the exam and going, gosh, I hope you pass. No, God tests you, not so that he can learn the results, but so that you can learn the results. God allows us to go through trials and tribulations, testings and difficulties, so that we can come to know ourselves. And like any good test giver or proctor, he only tests us, ready, when we're ready to be tested. Even though you think you ain't ready. Amen? You ever been through testing and you're like, no, 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 not yet. <laughs> and he says, yeah, yet. Because God knows when you're ready to pass the test. Oh, I hope that encourages you if you're in the middle of a test right now. There used to be this old adage in the church, don't ever pray for patience. You ever hear that? Don't pray for patience or he'll make you patient. You ever hear that? Or, or we tell this to leaders all the time. Don't pray for humility or he'll humble you. Which sounds like God has a desire to embarrass you. But that's not true. God doesn't want to hurt you or have you or force you or make you learn the hard way. Pray for patience. And quietly in the background, so gently, without even your understanding, he'll allow you to encounter moments to stretch you in your patience. Pray for humility. He will allow you gently in the stillness of your heart and the quiet of his voice to grow in your understanding that he's God and I'm not. And yes, there will come a day where he will test you. And you will prove yourself humble. You will find yourself more patient. God tests you when you're ready so that you can see what you're made of. You should pray for tests. Away with this faith of ours that runs away from difficult seasons, amen? Away with this cowardly Christianity that says, just make it easy for me. No. I want to fight. I want to face trouble. I want to be tested. I want to know what he's done in my life. I want to wake up the next day and go, my God, my God, look at where you've brought me from. Now, I'm not telling you to go through trouble or cause drama for yourself, amen? But I certainly won't tolerate you running from everything that scares you. Your God did not give you the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. It's just good thinking to stand in the face of the adversity that is in your life and say, bring it on. Y'all with me? But you won't pass this test. And you won't move forward if when the results come in, you don't believe it. He says this in verse 4, because I, I, and we're almost out of time. I want you to see this. In verse 4, he says, now, let steadfastness. 
perseverance, patience, endurance, the process by which you're made stronger and proven strong to yourself. Let that steadfastness have its full effect. Now, I want to go forward in just a minute. I want to talk about the three promises that come after good trouble, the three promises that come after testing and trial. But before we talk about promises, I got to get you to a place that you can sustain the promises. James says you got to let this take its full effect. Here's the problem with so many of us. We never endure anything. You're led by your emotions, and so things get difficult, and your feelings are hurt, and you're frustrated, and you quit because it hurts your feelings. They didn't talk right to me. It doesn't feel right to me. I'm not getting the recognition I like. I don't like this, and I'm done. And you were this close. Or you're not ruled by your emotions. You're ruled by how busy you are. Gosh, this whole Jesus thing takes forever. I thought I'd be further down the road. I'm just going to do me. And you give up. Or how about this? I just want it to be fun. How many of you, as the Lord's been working, you've just been like, this is kind of boring. They told me I'd be set free from alcohol, and I liked going to the club. I'd be set free from the addiction and the compulsion for sex and relationships, and now I don't know where I have value because no one touches me or speaks nice to me. And God begins a good work in you, and then you bail on the process. Oh, if I could tell you how many of us are this close to the breakthrough and then just give up. And James writes, and he says, hey, you got to let this thing, this thing take its full effect. It's going to take a few minutes or years. When we first started in ministry, I was as a... About a year sober, pastor at our church invited me to start leading worship, and, um, and pretty quickly they put me on the front line. We're in this mega church, and they had me up there, the one white boy singing gospel music, you know, and someone had said, we think you're called to ministry, and, and, and I was 31, and I was like, great, let's go. And I, I was positive that the Lord was going to send me to the nations within weeks. No doctrinal training. No real spiritual development, just a zeal. And most of us, once we get the zeal, we're like, what are we waiting for? Let's go. It was nine years before the Lord trusted me with leading people. Nine years. Now, if you were to tell me on day one, you're called to the nations in nine years, I'd be like, I'm getting another job, bro. This takes time, energy effort. And it's all worth it. You want to find the right relationship? Let the Lord heal you first. Don't get out of this one just to find the next one. It's going to be just as worse. Hear me. You want to find your purpose, your calling, what God sent you to? Seek his face. Fall in love with him and it will come out of the relationship. Don't rush it as Pastor Josh taught us. Trust the process. And if you do, here are the three promises that come out of good trouble. James says, let steadfastness take its full effect, that you may be perfect. It's the Greek word teleos. It means sound in mind, sound in spirit. When he writes this, he's implying this, if you'd let God have his way, he'll change your thinking 
and your positioning. He will change the way that you see the world. You won't process it in offense all the time. Every time someone says something to you, you won't get offended. You won't get bitter. You'll see and think like Jesus thinks, sound mind. And as he does it, he'll be sanctifying and renewing your heart, giving you a heart of flesh so that you no longer react as you did pre-Jesus. You no longer callous and angry. You respond as Jesus did with grace and comfort and gentility. It's teleos. He says, if you would let steadfastness take its place, you would be of sound mind and sound spirit made perfect. You said, pastor, I thought only Jesus was perfect. You're right. So far, only Jesus is perfect. But it was Jesus who taught us, be ye perfect. For my Father in heaven is perfect. He said, you're not there yet, but don't quit on the journey. I'm making you perfect every day more and more like me. Mind of Christ, heart of the Father. Then he says, but not just perfect, also complete. You see that in the text? That you may be perfect and complete. The word holokaros, it's a Greek word meaning whole in body. It means this beautiful, wonderful thing that our faith isn't just ephemeral, ethereal, or out there. It's not just about spiritual matters. This is also that it's about natural matters. He says, holoclaros. It means your, 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 your body is healed and whole. The word actually includes two more implications. Is this that that wasn't enough? That you're healthy and that you're happy. Could any of us use that today? James writes to us and he says, I'm promising you, hear me, count it all joy, brothers, when you go through trials, because one of the beauties of you counting it joy and letting steadfastness have its process is that your mind, your spirit, your body, and your heart will be healed whole and you'll start loving life. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You mean to tell me that hard things will make me like all things? Yes, and he's not just saying it's all about spirit. He's like, I mean, I really care about your body. You'll be made whole in your flesh. And if that wasn't enough, one more. That you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Spirit. Body. material experience. See, now we're a little more reformed in our theology, so, so we like spirit. <laughs> Amen? Oh, wretched man that I am, but I received mercy. But some of our faith traditions believe the word when it says that Jesus was the great physici physician. So, so they'll believe in the spirit and the body. But we get so worried about that part, don't we? we? We're always averse to the teaching that says that God will care about your life experience. We're all fooling ourselves to believe that it's good for me to be redeemed in my heart and maybe even healed if he'll allow it, but I'm surely meant to be destitute for all the days of my life. Suffering is a sign of righteousness, and if I'm poor, such is my lot. But James says, 
If you let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete. And lipomodice, which is the Greek word for lacking in nothing, and it means this, completely fulfilled in every area of your life. This is your Bible, just so you all know. I'm not up here talking about six things you need to grab and blessings to name it and claim it. This is James's teaching, and he says, hear me if you would walk through difficult seasons and let the Lord refine you, test you, prove you. Will you consider that good for you? He will not only refine your heart and bless your body, but he will make a way where there is no way in your life. Amen. See how hesitant we are? We're like, I want it. No, no one else is clapping. You do want it, right? You don't want to count your money and go paycheck to paycheck, do you? You don't want to be miserable, do you? I'm not sure. I'm not getting, I'm just, I was hoping we'd be a little more charismatic at the 11. Amen. You don't want to hate life, right? He says, if you would trust me in the seasons that make you want to hate life, you won't hate life. I'll make it easier for you. And I don't want to brag. I don't want to put you in any position. So I'll just point to all the believers in this room who have really put their trust in God, who have said, I used to struggle every area of my life, relationships, finances, careers, understanding, peace, friendship, all of those things. It was all hard. And now it's not. I mean, it doesn't mean that trials don't come, but I see them as joy because trials produce steadfastness, and steadfastness makes me perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. In fact, can I push this to you as we end service today? You should seek good trouble. You guys can come up. I want to worship. You said, Pastor, you don't know how much trouble I've seen in my life. Yeah, I do. Me too. Just, let's all do it again, okay? I got, a, I got a stack of photos in my iCloud account of all of the times I was arrested and book it, booked. I know what it's like to go through difficult things. I know what it's like to, to run out of dope and be on knees and elbows searching through the carpet just hoping that there was dope in there somewhere. I know what it's like to put rocks in a crack pipe because I thought they were crack. And I would do it all again. Because he who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to fruition in the days of Christ Jesus. You want another one? God works together all things for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Our God takes bad things and makes them good. Trouble is good. You don't believe me yet. Trouble is good. Let's put it in proper perspective. Trouble is not good for everybody. Amen. For those who are in Christ Jesus, trouble is good. For those who aren't sons and daughters of God, trouble's not good. Trouble's trouble. And you're left to fight trouble all by yourself. And hopefully you find a friend who can be in your corner and can encourage you, but they can't make trouble good. They can't redeem it because they're not the redeemer. But for those who put our faith in our heart in Christ Jesus, even trouble 
is good. I want you to stand to your feet. I want to worship one last thing. But I can't let you leave and miss this. So hear me. Don't you come to church on the coldest day so far. Don't you brave this and sit in a 50-degree sanctuary and be like, trouble's good, brother. And then when trouble hits on Wednesday, because I don't know if you know how this works, but whenever I preach a thing, then the Lord lets you experience that thing later in the week by talking to somebody. I'm like, life's going to get hard. And you're like, no, 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 no. Listen. Don't believe it Sunday. And then when you get a chance to live it on Wednesday, lose all hope. Don't you react the same way you used to react? Don't you recoil? Don't you run? Don't you get fearful? Don't you worry? Don't you cry out and go, why me, Lord? Another day of persecution and trouble. No, you have to believe this word. It's the only way you change your life. This is the word of God. It is true, authoritative, and sufficient. It's inerrant in its original teachings. And so when James says, count it joy, and you face trouble, you say yes. I want you to run into trouble this week and go, trouble's good. Now, say it quiet because your neighbors will freak out a little bit. But trouble is good. Say it with me. Trouble is good. One more time so you believe it. Trouble is good. But only for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. If you're here today and that's not you, you said, man, I want it. I'm tired of bad trouble. I'm tired of fighting alone. I'm going to pray a prayer and invite you to participate. Would, would you all bow your heads briefly? Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. You're in this room today. And you said, if Jesus can make my trouble good, then I want that. If Jesus can redeem even the darkest parts of me, then I want that. If that's you today and you've never said yes to Jesus and the promises that we're making to believers feel like unattainable things to you, they can be yours today. Now, every head is bowed and every eye is closed, but if that's you and you want to say yes to Jesus and begin a journey, I'm going to ask you to do one simple thing, and that's just look up from where you are, right where you are. I see you. I see you. All over the room, I see you. Let me make eye contact with you so I can agree with you. See you. I see you. I see you. Church, would you repeat this after me? Father God, say it with your chest. Say it like you mean it. Father God, I'm a sinner in need of saving. I'm fighting fights, and I'm losing it without you. I need you to take the lead. God, I believe you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to take my sin and my shame. Jesus, I believe you rose from the grave. And today, I invite you into my heart. Be my Lord and my Savior. I declare that from this day forward, I'll never be the same. And I will see that trouble is good. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining Be The Light Podcast with lead pastor C.B. Barthlow. Visit our website at denverbeacon.org. To download our Beacon app, text Beacon to 97000. Once again, text Beacon to 97000. Whatever you do, please remember to be 
the light. Let's go!